Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition, delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Welcome everybody to another episode of Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast. I'm Nick Fulweiler and I have Peter Bell as usual with me. How are you doing, Peter? As usual. This is, it's a good day. I'm, I'm happy yes. to be here. Yes, another day of fresh grace and mercy, indeed. Yep. Um, today, we are going to be talking about covenant. So, this is a term and a word uh, people probably have heard floating around from time to time and never really know how to nail it down and, and uh, think about it, but it is a legal contract. Yeah, or I've never heard about it before, so it's, this is new. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when it comes to a covenant, yep. is a covenant, Peter? Yeah, so I'm going to use a definition from a theologian that we've, we've brought up before a little bit. <laughs> His name is Meredith Klein. Uh, Meredith is a, is a guy, not a girl. So Meredith Klein. So he says right here, and it, it goes into it. So his converging lines of evidence have indicated that what is designated a barit, which is just the Hebrew term for covenant, is, and this is the definition, primarily a legal disposition, or you can say contract, characteristically established by oath and defined by the terms specified in oath-bound, divinely sanctioned commitments. We have also found that there's a functional aspect common to the divine barit or covenant transactions, which provides warrant for those engaged in theological analysis to employ the term covenant in the sense of kingdom administration. So like what you said, it's a fancy way of saying this covenant has stipulations either based off of God's responsibility or our responsibility. And based off the performance of that, there is either consequences for bad or consequences for good Hmm. so it's a contract where either one party or both parties have responsibilities and then based off of the action on the responsibilities you're either cursed or you're blessed okay so it's a very legal term very yeah very 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 legal term okay good it makes it easier to actually understand the more legal it is uh yeah, they, they very specifically used a Hebrew word and a Greek word that were used in like legal transactions, whether it be a house transaction, like a, like a last will transaction. That's, that's the words that they used in the Bible. Okay, good. That's a good place to start. So uh, typically, if people do know a lot about covenants and you could most people in our Christian faith would say there's even up to eight covenants, which in the in biblical. And I know already that you will probably correct me on some of these. <laughs> yeah. uh, what what probably the uh, going on the the majority end where it's the majority of covenants people think that are is about round eight where it's um, Edenic uh, the covenant which is rule which would be before the fall then adamic which is redemption right after the fall then noahic which is restraint uh during obviously the um noah's ark 
uh, destroying the world and saving that one family for a new uh, people. And then the Abrahamic, which is restore. Um, then Mosaic, which is reveal. Then it gets into Palestinian for return, then Davidic for reign, and then the Messianic, which is also sometimes called new, which is regenerate. Mm-hmm. Um, so would you be able to break those down, correct those into the Reformed doctrine and kind of do your, do your work on that? Yeah, so there's, yeah, there's, there's some... There's some theologies that have seven, there's some that have eight, and I think there's some that have ten. And so oh, wow. it kind of depends, <clears throat> yeah, it kind of depends on um, if they see the Hebrew term barit, which is just translated covenant or testament um, in the text, or if like the context kind of makes you think this is a covenant, because there's some covenants in the Bible that doesn't directly say that this is a covenant using those words. And then same as the New Testament as well. So that's why there's a lot of um, conjecture. There's a lot of debate because the word is not used in some of these instances. And so it's hard to figure out, is this a covenant and what does it point to? And it tends to be the more covenants, quote unquote, that you find, the less unified the whole story is. Where there's different pieces and parts that not necessarily don't work together, but you can't find a unifying theme throughout the entirety of scripture. Um, and the historical reform position has been, we see three covenants, the covenant of redemption. We talked about that in the Trinity episode, if you guys wanna, if you guys wanna listen to that one real quick. That was the agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father plans salvation, the Son executes salvation, and the Spirit applies salvation. Mm. And there's a covenant of works, which we see in that scheme that you brought up, we see that in Adam, pre-fall, which is don't eat of this tree. If you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. And the word covenant's not explicitly placed in that one, but it's also, we have to think, even though it's not in there, is the concept there. And same thing with the Trinity. The word Trinity is not in the Bible, but we see the concept of Trinity in the Bible. So we see the works principle in Adam, and we see it also in the Mosaic Covenant with the Ten Commandments. Um, and we see it kind of throughout Leviticus 18.5 says, do this and you shall live. It's brought up by Paul in Galatians 3 and Galatians 4. And it's, it's more or less Paul saying, hey, here's this law that you guys have to abide by. You guys can't do this. Therefore, you need a mediator to do this for you. And we see that kind of throughout salvation history. So in the Judges, we see that in the Kings. We see they're supposed to give the law to the people, but their people fail and the mediator themselves fail. So they need somebody to come and do it for them. Mm-hmm. And then we see the covenant of grace. And we see that really first off in Genesis 3.15 um, with the promise of a seed who will overcome the serpent. Uh, and eventually uh, that's, that's shown to be Christ. And then that's um, brought up again during Abraham. It's brought up again during David. It's brought up again in Jeremiah 31. <clears throat> Whenever in the Old Testament we see, and I will be your God and you will be my people, what he's doing is he's restating that same covenant that he gave to Abraham. And he also kind of gave to Adam with the multiplying his seed, spreading the earth and subduing it. So we see those three covenants overarching that help us explain and unify um, 
covenants written in the Bible, um, shown in the Bible. So that's, that's the scheme we find in Reformed theology is those three covenants. And they're, what we say, they're differently administered throughout the Bible, but they're unified in the sense that they show you what the Bible's final destination is in Christ. So the Reformed doctrine goes off instead of these eight, you narrow it down more to three? Yeah, we narrow it to three. We see covenants. We see those various covenants, Mm -hmm. but we put them under those three covenants because they all show us aspects of either the the plan between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We see that in John 17. Um, And then the works principle, which is do this and you shall live. We see that in Adam. We see that in Moses. Um, We see that a little bit with with David. We see it in Hosea. Hosea 6 talks about it as well. We see it all throughout Scripture and the New Testament as well. And then that covenant of grace, which is that redemptive covenant. Covenant of works is the one that breaks you, tells you you have to do this in order to obtain righteousness. Mm -hmm. And covenant of grace says this is the one who's done it, who has obtained righteousness for you. So we see those covenants as the overarching plan and those covenants that you described as as the kind of ground level, but explained by those three covenants above it. Okay. They're more, they're more like titles, and those other ones are subcategories. Oh, and then, so some people take these subcategories and make that a whole new covenant. Yeah, exactly. Versus seeing them under the title, the, like the big pillars of the covenants. Okay. Yeah, the, the most common covenants I've at least heard of, and I'm, I might be a ma- more of a majority, uh, the Noahic covenant, yep. uh, the Abrahamic covenant, yep. the Mosaic covenant, mm-hmm. the Davidic covenant, mm-hmm. and the Messianic covenant. Those yeah. are things that I've heard personally more, so that's already more than three. Yeah. And when I'm looking at this table that I've looked at, um, that it, it, there's even eight, which you've already said that's not, it shouldn't, the it reformed isn't that many. So, so I even did my best to get it down to four. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, how can we get that four to three? Yeah. So, it's, it's, it's like I said, so you want to see what do these covenants have in common? I know you'll ask questions later on on unconditional versus conditional. And so we can talk about that later, but a lot of it revolves around what is this covenant pointing towards? Or what is this covenant in and of itself? And so we wanna see, because we see Christ in all of scripture, we wanna see Christ in his gospel and all of scripture as reformed people. Mm-hmm. We wanna see everything unified that points us to Christ and his work and our sin that points towards his work. Mm. We want to see a unified concept in Reformed theology versus so many things broken up, and it's hard to see how do all of these play together to show us who Christ is and what his work has done for us. Mm. Okay. Um, and I think you already did this, but just one more time, even for yeah. me and the other people that might be slower to learning. <laughs> yeah. uh, can you take each of the three? Yep. And name them, and in one sentence, just describe each one. Yep. So, first one, overarching covenant of redemption, 
That is the plan of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The yeah. Father planned redemption. The Son executed or accomplished salvation. And the Spirit applies salvation. And then covenant of works is we see that variously throughout Scripture. And that a simple way is do this and you shall live. And then covenant of grace is we see that again in various ways either promised or fulfilled in scripture as this has been done, so live. Oh, okay. Now it's getting a little more clear to me, but um, are we able to still honor the names of uh, Mosaic and Abrahamic in which ones of those would be subcategories? Yeah, so it's what we see um, in the Adamic, the Adam covenant, we see a covenant of works. So that's okay. in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Do not eat of this tree, for in eating of it, dying you shall surely die, or you shall surely die. Okay. Um, within the uh, Noahic, we actually see something that's kind of under the covenant. Noahic's really hard for most theologians to figure out. And that mm -hmm. one's more of the covenant of common grace within Reformed theology. So it's more so preservation of human life overall. So preservation of Christians and non-Christians both. So preserving the land, preserving people. And that's more so to help, like we talked about in the vocation episode, um, that's to help lead towards eventual repentance, to keep them in the land, keep them healthy, so that they can one day know the Lord. And if not, it just heaps up judgment on top of them. But it's mm. covenant of common grace. And then in the Abrahamic, we see a very, very clear covenant of grace. And that's mostly from Genesis 15. And that's in there's this covenant-making ceremony that was very well known in the ancient Near East at that time in 1500, 2000 BC, where what they would do is they cut up two halves of animals. They place it on the side of this little walkway. And then one person would carry like a fiery torch, walk through it. And they say, if I don't fulfill my end of this covenant, may what happened to these things that I'm walking through happen to me. And that same covenant ceremony we see in Genesis 15, exactly the same ceremony. And it's not Abraham who walks through it saying, I, I have to do these things. It's actually Yahweh who walks through mm -hmm. these two cut animals and says, if I can't fulfill this covenant to you, Abraham, let what happened to these animals happen to me. And so he's providing an unconditional covenant for Abraham and all of those who would come, who would, who would come under his bosom or his lineage. And then in the um, Mosaic, the Moses covenant, that one we see kind of in two ways. There's a covenant of grace where these Israelites have been saved, have been rescued from Egypt. So they've been taken out of bondage, taken out of slavery into the promised land. And so there's a grace principle there, but we also see a works principle. These 10 commandments, literally do this and we see this in Levit leviticus 18 5 summarizes it for us do this do these 10 commandments and you shall live and that's what we talked about before in a couple other episodes where it's a temporary picture this works principle a temporary picture of staying in the land but it points the israelites to you can't do this on your own you need somebody who does this law perfectly on your behalf um, so we see kind of both in that one. The Davidic, we see a very clear covenant of grace. 
saying somebody will come from your lineage, somebody will come from um, your seed, who will be a true king, and the true king, a king in ancient Near East or in the Israelite community, was somebody not who ruled, but somebody who did, somebody who did the law. It was, they were to proclaim the law. They were to uphold the law themselves, be a model to, to their people. And then in Christ, obviously we see the fulfillment of all covenants. We see he is the one who accomplished redemption. He is the one who lived perfectly under the law, as Paul says in Galatians and Ephesians, was under the law for us, as Romans uh, 5 talks about. And was that grace covenant fulfiller. So he fulfilled the covenant of works for those who were in him. Therefore, we are given the benefit. We are given the consequence of the covenant of grace. So that's, that's how you wrap up all those covenants under those headings. Wow. Super helpful. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so what's the difference between conditional covenant and unconditional covenant and which yeah. are from God? Yeah. So both are from God. And so again, looking at these different covenants, some have what we call a dual aspect. So they have both. So that's, that's a lot like the Mosaic covenant where they're already out of slavery. They're already out of bondage, but now they face the law, but they've already obtained the land or they're about to obtain the land, the promised land being Canaan, the one that flows with milk and honey. Um, but conditional is these are the stipulations that you must fulfill. Here are the consequences for either your good or for your curse if you do them or if you don't do them. And we see that because Deuteronomy, that Deut Deuteronomy is just a Latin word for like second law or second telling of the law. Deutero is second and namas is law. Um, in Greek, and then there's some Latin translations as well for that as well. Um, but within this, what we see very clearly is in, what, two, 2200 BC to about 1500 BC, we have a lot of legal texts from surrounding cultures um, outside of Israel that are structured extremely similarly to what we see in the Ten Commandments and the way that Deuteronomy works. And so the, like the way that it's written looks a lot similar to they call a neo-assyrian and canaanite so it's just the surrounding cultures around them how they would have done covenant ceremonies how they would have made an agreement between two different parties or a king and his people um, and it's much the same way we're like we americans we benefit from um if we go and buy a house if we have a mortgage we have some contracts we relatively know what a contract looks like because we've seen contracts from outside of us We've seen our friends have contracts or they've told us about it. And so we know kind of when we are given one, like, oh, this is a, this is a mortgage contract. This is, these are all the charges on my house. This is the interest that I owe. This is the bank that it's through. And so the language is very similar to us. Same thing would have been for the Israelites. They would have seen the covenant of worse, like, oh, this looks very similar to what my neighbors have with their king. Um, and so it's more so just to make it understandable for them. So that's, that's the conditional. Unconditional is God tells us, I'm doing this for you. Plain and simple. Mm. And that covenant of redemption is the background for the covenant of works. So God, uh, the Son, and then the Spirit agree that the Son is going to fulfill the true everlasting covenant of works. 
in order to affect the cover of grace. Wow, cool. So there's a lot to it, but it's, it's understanding the history, the culture, the context. And so to briefly state it, just so if people kind of lost track, mm-hmm. un- unconditional is God telling us, I have done this and will do this for you. You have nothing to do. Conditional okay. is God coming into contract with us. Here's my part. Here's your part. We already know God's going to fulfill his part. So it's, will we fulfill our part? That tends to be the covenant of works. And no, we never fulfill our part. <laughs> nope. Which is why we need the unconditional, the Abrahamic one. I will be your God. You will be my people. Him walking through the dead carcasses because he knows we will fulfill or he will fulfill it on, on our behalf. Mm-hmm. This next question relates to that and something you brought up earlier and something that was the most profound part of covenants that I've previously heard. Yeah. Um, And I think it was from RTS and it was regarding what you were mentioning about God walking between the two uh, split animals, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, however you want to picture that in your head, the meaning (laughs) that he there's no way he can, in his essence, break that. And he's pretty much saying, if I break this, I am no longer who I say I am. Yep. I am. Yeah, he's calling himself a liar if he breaks it. And which is impossible because he's purely truth. So it would, in a way, there's no way this would happen. But if it did, it would, he would destroy himself. Yeah. Yeah. And this... This wasn't a new or like novel ceremony. Abraham probably would have seen this done outside of his people. So he would have recognized this stuff. He would have recognized the ceremony. And there's pretty good evidence to say, I think we think Abraham thought he was going to be the one who was walking through it. And so he's put to sleep saying, you can't even accomplish this. I don't even want you awake during the ceremony when it's usually the one who is promised these things who walks through it. And that's what Abraham's thinking. And when Yahweh walks through it, that should be a shock to us. Saying, why is the God of the universe putting these on himself? Wow. I mean, it, it because we know that he's going to hold true to it. Yep. He's a trustworthy source uh, in existence. So, yep. uh Good. I hope that kind of resonates with people like it did with me. That was probably out of all the covenant talk and information, that was the most helpful to me. Mm -hmm. And what, oh, just so me and everyone else, uh, what specific verse is that from? It's um, Genesis 15. I think it's verses 1 through 17. It's the first part of Genesis 15. Okay. Um, It describes the ceremony. Um, this, you kind of answered this, but what happens to man if we break a covenant? And uh, you already kind of answered this with that part. Is a bigger question. How do we know God won't only uh, can't break it, but what would happen to him if he did? So we answered that part. So what would happen to man if we broke a covenant? Yeah, and we see that where Adam did break the covenant. Um, Adam broke that first covenant, that covenant of works to stay in Eden and to be in Yahweh's presence, to be blessed in Yahweh's presence forever and then continually expand the borders of the garden. 
And if you guys want to hear a little bit more about that, that's the episode in the fall. That's episode four. If you guys want to learn a little bit more about Eden and that promise to, or that, uh, that covenant with, with Adam and what all that stuff means for the temple. Um, but that's what cursed human race. That's what we sinned in Adam ourselves. Literally we sinned and then we continually live in that sin. And then all of the consequences, all of the world, um, is cursed because of our sin. Uh, and continually the covenant of works we break. And that's, again, it's the law bearing and burdening us as believers saying you have been bought from this and this is the one you've been bought from this is one you've been bought towards and then for non-believers that covenant of works that one under adam is a curse saying the promise given to adam you will die you'll be out of my presence that is true of non-believers right now is that covenant is the one that condemns the law condemns and the law exposes sin and so it is as true now as it was back then, where those without a mediator, that means eternal, not just separation, but you can't be in his presence. And so forever, out, being outside of God's presence doesn't mean God is not around. It means God is continually judging. You cannot be in that blessed presence with Yahweh. He will forever and continually judge because that's all he can do based off his character. Wow. I think this episode is just gonna be super helpful for people. Um, yeah, this is helpful for me learning this what fall yeah. semester last year. Okay. Um, this next question is based on my own personal interpretation, so it's more of um, you know I need help confirming or denying if I'm correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, so since a covenant is a legal binding of a relationship, is that based off God's truest nature of being in covenant relationship between the Trinity persons and himself before creation and still today and forevermore? Is this how it was inspired to be worked out for the world? And what I mean by that is you need to have a relationship with somebody else to create a covenant. And if he wasn't a Trinitarian God, he wouldn't have that essence of his nature to do, to do that for us as well. So kind yeah. of go back to our earlier podcast about the Trinity and he needed to be in a relationship with the other himself, uh, the other people in the Trinity for meaning of love for relationship. So yeah, that's, that was, the essence of being God is to be a Trinity. Yes. Um, and the essence of a Trinity is to have three persons share equally in that divinity. And by the, again, by the very nature of being a Trinity is to be in covenant with one another because there are always stipulations in that covenant, but they perfectly fulfill that covenant, each one of the Trinity, perfectly. Mm -hmm. So you say I was right? <laughs> the what? Would you say I was more correct? Yeah, yeah. So it's, I think it's, yeah, I think it's very true and very appropriate to say because we have a covenantal God, we have a covenantal Lord, um, these three persons of the divine trinity are in covenant with each other. It makes mm -hmm. sense that we're in covenant with that trinity. 
Yeah, and it, it goes back to we can trust him because he, keep he keeps a covenant with himself, yep. with the other Trinity people. Yeah, that, that, no. that redemption that we talked about, again, in Trinity, that episode on the Trinity, and then we're talking about again, that covenant of redemption wasn't just one time made. It's effectively, perpetually made perfectly. And so we, being creators, are create, created, are supposed to mirror that perfection. But again, we fail based off the law. Yep. Good. Um, this next question, you you kind of answered by clarifying the names of yeah. the covenants on the Reformed view. Yep. Um, however, uh, just generally speaking, when people hear of uh, covenants, they're typically named after individuals like the Abrahamic, the Mosaic. Yeah. Uh, so I, maybe I don't need to say why are all, but why are the covenants named after individuals if they are for a mass group of people? Yeah, I think it's it tended to be just an easy way to remember them. Um, True. You can just refer back to this covenant. Oh, the covenant made with Moses, or the, you can say the Mosaic covenant. So it's just an easier reference. Yeah, and I think the the easiest one out of all of them would be the Abrahamic because it started with Abraham, his family line yeah. promise um, that we are a part of. Yeah, that's the one that's most referred to in the Old and New Testament. Yeah. Um, we are currently in the Messianic Covenant now, correct? Yeah, that's this one's, I think sometimes people not mislabel it or mis I think it's a little bit misunderstood where the mess messianic or new covenant has always been a covenant. Um, we just saw the perfection and the fulfillments of that covenant with Christ, but that covenant's always been in effect. Oh, okay. Again, why like we as reformed, we are Presbyterian. We like, we see this within our own theology and the way that we run our church is we see this new covenant having always been in effect, but being perfectly displayed and fulfilled in Christ. Mm. Yeah, they're not linearly divided up as... Yeah. Okay. It's more to, easier to look at the Messianic covenant as the large umbrella, maybe? Yeah, yeah. I think the covenant of works and covenant of grace have always been in play throughout the history of the old new testament but in different ways more visible less visible and then we see them perfected and fulfilled in christ doesn't mean they're different pre-christ just means they're fulfilled and shown as perfect in christ okay so sometimes you'll hear old testament is the old covenant and new testament is the new covenant um, and it's like there, there can be some confusion around why those terms are used. Mm. So with the statement that, or question that, um, do covenants supersede all previous covenants completely? Yeah, that, yeah, that tends to be, and not like demonizing at all, but that tends to be the dispensational argument mm. is each new covenant consumes and makes null or voids the previous covenant where which is why we see in reformed theology we see these three covenants variously administered throughout the new testament and old testament 
all under that redemption of Christ. But we see those covenants used and shown and administered. And then we find the covenant of grace being perpetual from here on out in the consummation when Christ comes back. Got it. Okay. So covenant of works is still a thing now. Where that law, like we talked about in the law and gospel, the, the two-part episodes, mm -hmm. um, the covenant of works, the law is still in effect for believers and non-believers, but for believers it's been fulfilled and it shows us the nature of Christ. For non-believers, it's the burden on top of them that's supposed to point them to the one who fulfills it. Versus just saying it's just a new covenant now, because then you have to wonder what's the use of the law. Right. Because that's when people tend to say, like, oh, it's just grace now, there's no law. And then how do you understand what the gospel is in that context? Yeah. The the law and gospel episodes back to back, we answer that pretty well, as well as the salvation episode. Yeah. Yep. Um, so need works, understand grace. Right. So right now we're in the church age. Yep. Um, the Holy Spirit is really the one helping uh, guide us. And yeah. it, so you confirmed this before, like if we had to say we're in one covenant right now, we're in the messianic one, uh, which is really kind of engulfs all the other ones as well. But uh, we're in the church age uh, under the messianic covenant submitted to Jesus. Um, is this a foreshadow, um, a replication, a symbol of marriage between two people? Yeah, I think in a sense, I think Paul describes that a little bit in Ephesians 5. Mm -hmm. um, he talks about the marriage of Christ and the church. And the reason why he says that is we can see in Hosea, there's a, uh, an image, a metaphor used of an unfaithful wife and the bridegroom who's trying to lure this unfaithful wife. And it's because Hosea 6-7 says, like Adam, she transgressed the law. And he's talking about Israel, that they failed and they failed and they continually failed. And so marriage being that covenant uh, or marriage kind of being a good metaphor, but more so on the side of that true groom, not just a human groom, but the perfect divine groom who took on the wife's burden and says, I will take your burden. I will fulfill your burden. And that's what connects you with me. Before then, you could not have been married to me. You could not have been unified with me. I needed to make things right. I needed to fulfill that law on your behalf in order for us to be unified in this marriage, which is what Israel was supposed to do, but they continually failed. And again, we are supposed to do pre-Christ or outside of Christ and we continually fail and so marriage being appropriate but it's more so that groom is that perfect groom and we are the unfaithful wife um, who's been unified with him because he's fulfilled it on our behalf so we can be married to him mm -hmm. and going back to uh, marriage is a legal binding contract yep uh really combining merging two individuals uh yeah and our our it's not like the husband's perfect or the husband or the wife is not perfect it's it is a perfect picture of an imperfect relationship on earth 
mm-hmm. but this imperfect relationship should point towards that perfect relationship. Right. And, and well, maybe in the future we'll make an episode about uh, solely about marriage, but it's, it is a great reflection on how Jesus treat, how Jesus uh, is re- relates to the church yeah. and what he does for the church as men for your, to your wives and the church response to Jesus is how women are to their husbands. So simply gratitude. Yeah, that'll be a good topic in the future. Yeah. Um, this isn't like a super important question that changes, yeah. but it's more of like a curiosity one. Um, yeah. In its time span of history, have the covenants been consistent in length from from time from one to the other? Yeah. So we, and this one's hard because we're not given um, exact data from scripture. But we do see, again, in Reformed theology, we see the covenant of redemption between the Father, Son, and Spirit. We see that being eternal. So that has always been true. Yep. Um, Covenant of works, we see that obviously pre-fall. And covenant of grace, we see that post-fall. And so I guess technically you can say covenant of works is older than the covenant of grace. Um, By how much time? We don't know. We don't know when the law was given to adam and when we, when he transgressed we're, we're not sure mm. um how did the sacraments and worship change from one covenant to another mm. that's a yeah that's a good question um on covenant so in reform theology um within presbyterianism with the covenant of grace and covenant of works we see covenant of grace again starting Genesis 3.15, and really getting in solidified form, pointing to the future in Abraham with, uh, you will be, or I will be your God, you will be my people, and the circumcision on the eighth day as the invitation into that covenant, as the invitation into that visible church, that visible Abrahamic church, going through Israel, going through Judges and the writings, going through the prophets, and then going through the New Testament. Where because of the duration, that's why, again, I stress that covenant of grace has been true in the Old Testament and the New Testament, which is why as Reformed Presbyterians, we see um, paedo-baptism or like the, the baptism of a, of a baby of two believing parents. Because we see the covenant of grace being true from Abraham through now is why we baptize our babies as a sign that they've entered into this covenant, they've entered into this visible representation of the church. Mm. And then the Lord's Supper being the reformed idea of your communication of faith. And the reason why we say that is the only one of those two that have been cursed for doing it wrongly is Lord's Supper. There's no curse against wrongly baptizing. Uh, Within Paul's letters, he talks about the curse, the judgment falling on somebody who improperly and out of faith takes the lord's supper and so we see that as somebody's improperly or saying that they have faith when there is no faith um and again why we do baptism because we see a unified covenant of grace entering into that church and then the profession of faith being the lord's supper but then again we also baptize adults who come from outside the church because they're now entering into that visible community and that Lord's Supper, again, being there 
I am a Christian. I believe I, I am part of the invisible community. So baptism is the visible community and Lord's Supper is the invisible community. And that's all under the covenant of grace. Very helpful answer. Um, and if you've, if you've ever been to church and right before you do communion, which is uh, representing the last supper and yeah. the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. And you hear the pastor mention, um, if you're not a believer, please don't partake in this. And they yeah. kind of go on and explain that. That's why, because yep. it's not to be mean or anything. It's saying this is serious. Like only believers have to uh, partake in this. Yeah, you are identifying with the blood and body of Jesus Christ. And to identify improperly is not judgment in the sense of like, this is bad. It's you have shown yourself to know that this is the body and blood of Christ and what it represents. And if you come in unbelief, it's just more revelation, more um, scripture on top of you showing who Christ is. And out of belief, if you're not in belief, that is higher and higher condemnation. The more that you know, the more that you're condemned outside of belief. Um, I, I didn't have this question listed and, and a lot of my questions aren't, and we kind of just had, that's why it's an unscripted conversation, but this popped in and I, I think I maybe can channel other listeners in this question. What if, and you didn't know, it's like, put it up as negligence that past you, you took, you partook in communion and you had no idea that you weren't supposed to do that. Um, you didn't know that you had to be like 100, you had to know that you're justified and you already saved. You're just yeah. kind of at church and you're like, oh, I should probably do communion. And um, is that, is that forgivable? Like it says it's cursed. And like now we're scared that we accidentally yeah. did communion before. Yeah. So this, this again, if people want to refer to the salvation episode that talks about all of this stuff and, and helps us understand what is salvation um, against what is not salvation. It is because of original sin, because we've already been cursed under the law, because we sinned in Adam, as Romans 5 talks about, as Romans 5 tells us, and we continually sin after Adam. We sin because we're sinners. That's what leads to our condemnation. And so not, it's not just a simple act of, oh, I'm now partaking of this Lord's Supper that curses me. It's because you're already under this curse and you don't have a mediator between you and this curse who's fulfilled the law or the commands of the law, it adds on top because the revelation, like you've, you've seen, you've heard, you've tasted, as Paul talks about. And so he's not saying like you were once in this or you're ignorant. It's you were already condemned. Mm. You have no mediator. And so it's just adding on top of your condemnation versus a believer if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart, I don't think God at the end is going to say, like, you know what? You just tricked yourself. I don't think that's the case with God. I think as if you believe, if you believe with your heart, like I said, you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ has died for your sins and lived that perfect life for you and gave it to you, you are saved. And it, the more we question that, I think also is a help to us because the more we question our salvation, I think the more we see there's a standard I can't reach there's somebody who reached it for me, but that doesn't make sense because I'm such a bad person. Um, I think that should lead us, even though it's hard and it, it causes you to doubt, I think it also should cause you to, to rejoice 
Because if you didn't have that standard, you wouldn't be a Christian. Because non-Christians don't struggle with sin. They don't struggle with the standard because there is no standard in their minds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the it wouldn't be that um, you go to heaven and, and God is like, oh, okay, you're saved. Good job. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Before yeah. you were saved officially, it looks like you did communion. Nope. Christ's salvation covers all sin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this hopefully assuaged and calmed your nerves uh, like some, yeah, like it should. So yeah, um, grace covers that. And yep. um, uh, okay, good, good. Uh, is there a covenant after the messianic one? No, no, it'll just be that covenant of grace from heaven on. It'll be... God is our God, and we are his people. It will be the perfect fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. We will forever be in the presence in that perfect Eden with God. We will experience, I think in a a very real way, the covenant of redemption. We will experience the love between those three Trinitarian um, persons um, because we will be sanctified as Christ is sanctified. As Christ is, is, is perfect, we will be perfect glorified you mean like yeah I mean, glorified yep yeah, yeah it's kind of the same thing yep yeah um so it's really when you are glorified um you've you've completed all i mean not you've completed but all the <laughs> are covenants are more language to us here on earth yep. they're, yeah. they're really once you're glorified in heaven there's not really just like when you look at the bible the bible's um this basic instructions before leaving earth. I don't know if you agree with that. Yeah. We'll, we'll partake in some sense of like Trinitarian perfect love. Yeah. Right. So like, just like the Bible and God's communication to us through covenants and everything here on earth is to get us to heaven. Yeah. It's to picture what heaven in a temporary, very finite way is going to be, perfectly and infinitely um just a this is kind of a redundant question but yeah. it's super helpful p- for people to hear over and over how do we know if we are covered under mm-hmm. the covenant covenant or not yeah we know if like i said romans 10 says if we've confessed with our mouth and believe with our heart if we mm-hmm. trust that christ's obedience was for us and he's given us his righteousness under the law we are in the covenant of grace if we have not confessed if christ is just some person to us is not the savior of our sins or the savior under the law we are currently under the covenant of works so there's only two you're either under the law as the as you were trying to be your own savior under the law you're under the covenant of works if you're under Christ, you're under the covenant of grace. Exactly. But it's, I mean, it is very simply, you believe in Christ, you are now in the covenant of grace. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you do. It's belief that his obedience was given to you. I feel like a lot of these answers to these questions, she just keeps going, well, understandably so, keeps going back to the gospel. That's it. 
You could like literally answer every question. It's It's because we forget. I forget, you forget. And that's why we go to church every week. And on Sunday, we are reminded of the gospel because we forget. We we don't need seven steps to a healthier marriage, seven steps to better finances. We need the gospel week in, week out. Yep. You need it uh, as a believer. Remind oh my gosh, I need it. Yeah, all the time. Uh, just as much as somebody that pops in for the first time ever to church, they need to hear it. Uh, yeah. That's so important to hear the gospel literally. Yeah. And it's not because I have left the covenant of grace or have left the gospel. It's because I'm simply a, a sinner who's been redeemed, who needs to be consistently reminded you've been redeemed. You've been obeyed for. Not you've fallen. You've been obeyed for continually remind yourself of that every week mm-hmm. do you think there's uh something that churches mainly get mixed up and confused about the covenants i think i mean whether they mean it or not and i'm not terribly sure kind of where most churches fall but from what i've seen churches tend to lay pretty have heavy emphasis on the law and so it tends to be as a person you go to church you're saved you confess you're baptized kind of in your average church and what happens from there on out into your death is you're given a lot of law and so it's hey you're in the covenant of grace you're in christ but stay in and here's all of these moral sermons that i'm going to give you for the next 50 years to lead you to be a better person to work harder to pray more to read your bible more which are all great things but it tends to be the emphasis of stay in this covenant, stay in Christ. You fall in, oh my gosh, get back into the covenant, get back into the gospel where it should be. You are already in the gospel. Let us remind you every week that you're in the gospel. Continually remind you every week. It should be, like you said, it should be like repetitive. Every single week they remind you, here's how this text reminds you that you're in the gospel. Not... You were in the gospel once, great. Now let's learn some more stuff that's on top of the gospel. And then when you're dead or when you're about to die, they remind you of the gospel again. It should be a consistent, continual reminder. Mm. Amen. That's so good. Man, this this episode's just fire, dude. I I feel (laughs) like, I love it. Maybe it's just what I needed to personally know because I I think my level of understanding of covenant was, I don't know, pretty basic. I, I didn't really which is no one's fault. Like, I, I just think that it was just a really good edification on, uh, for me. Yeah. It's um, been huge for me too. I mean, cool. I need the gospel every week cause I continually go back to my sin every week. doesn't mean I'm outside of the gospel. It mm-hmm. just means I need to be reminded of my identity, my true identity, my foundational identity now in Christ. Mm-hmm. All right. So final question. Let's, uh, yeah. let's have you close this out. It's going to be like, I think the last three questions is like almost the same answer, but like yeah. right to that, how does the covenant theme tie directly to the gospel? Yeah. And we see this throughout scripture from the old Testament to the new Testament. We see those three covenants variously given in different people, different mediators, Um, that imperfectly show obedience, that imperfectly show righteousness, that sin consistently. Um, And so the works, that law shows us, you cannot do this on your own. You cannot fulfill this promise. You cannot fulfill these obligations. You cannot fulfill 
even one millisecond of one day of one of these covenants or one of these commandments, let alone all 10, which is where that covenant of grace comes in and says, Christ from eternity past to the present and to the future has perfectly fulfilled these on your behalf, has given you position in this covenant of grace, has given you his obedience, has given you his righteousness because he was that one in the covenant of works, in the desert, in the gospels, who did what Adam couldn't do, who did what all the mediators of the Old Testament, New Testament could not do, perfectly obeyed everything, perfectly followed the Father's will, and gave us literally everything he did, all of his obedience, all of his righteousness, gave it to us. The Father recognizes this and says, this is sufficient, your obedience on their behalf, I will grant them entrance into my presence. And that's true of us believers. We have been given this covenant of grace. We've been given his obedience, which saves us from under the covenant of works. Doesn't save us outside of it. We were under that covenant. And Christ, through his obedience, has given us, has put us in that covenant of grace. And for those who are not believers yet, who are still under the covenant of works, you are still under the burden of the law. You are still under the burden of the imperfect mediators throughout the Old Testament, the judges, the kings, the priests, the prophets, everyone who pointed to, you can't do this on your own. No matter what you do, no matter who you are, no matter how many volunteer societies that you, that you go sign up with, no matter what good you do, it is not good or it is not perfect in the sight of God. And it's belief in Christ that gives you entrance into this covenant of grace and gives you that perfect Trinitarian love that you will forever experience in heaven. Mm. Amen. Thank God he loves us so much that he provides us a covenant that he shares with himself in the Trinity. Yeah. That's just so profound that he cares enough about us that he provides a legal contract with, um, with his creation. Yep. Cool. Well, let's, let's close it out there. Thank you, Peter. Um, that was a, that was a great one. Um, we will, uh, let you guys go and we'll catch you next time. Yep. Like us, subscribe to us, ask us any questions. All the notes are in the podcast and we'll see you next time. Yep. Thank you.